Hey, welcome to the Cherry Hills podcast. This fall, we are rejoining and concluding our series in the Gospel of Mark, where we're learning the way of Jesus together. Thanks for joining us. I have loved having people read scripture for us during this series. And today, uh, I'm excited that Carol Diedrichson is going to read for us. Uh, When she is finished, we will uh, respond with the words, thanks be to God. A reading from Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which, which, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb, They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 1879, Russian author Leo Tolstoy wrote these words in his short work called A Confession. He struggled with his faith and he ultimately followed Jesus, but it was always a struggle. And these words reveal his struggle. Just listen to this quote from him. He said, my question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man from the foolish child to the wisest elder. It was a question without an answer to which one cannot live. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy. Let me put that on the screen because this is the question all of us have asked at one time or another. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Is this as good as it gets? Is this all there is? Is there any meaning in this life? Maybe you've wrestled with that in the past, or you have an ache or an angst that hungers for more. Maybe you're experiencing that question right now. And today we conclude our series in the Gospel of Mark called The Way of Jesus. And over the past two years, if you're following in your notes, we have been spending time with Jesus, learning to live the way of Jesus. And today, we're going to look at Mark's account of the resurrection of Jesus and talk about why the resurrection is the only answer that gives meaning to our lives. 
It's the only answer. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, we have black Bibles in the seat back in front of you. Mark chapter 16 can be found on page 829 of those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible home with you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's word. But I I do think it's going to be beneficial for you to have the Bible open today as we walk through some of these verses to take some notes. If you look in your Bibles between verses 8 and 9, you see some words that say something similar to this. You can see this on the screen, and you can look in your Bibles as well. It says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. In all of the scholars that I read in preparing for this, no one believes these verses are authentic to the Gospel of Mark. There's, there's not a scholar that believes they're authentic. Everyone believes they are added later to, quote, finish the story because they didn't think Mark adequately finished the good news. I even asked our own Chad Reeser, our uh, uh, doctor in residence on the Gospel of Mark. He did his dissertation in Mark, and Chad said there's no way these are original. No way that they're original. So verses 9 to 20 were not in any of the earliest manuscripts. And then the King James Version of the Bible came along in the year 1611. And they included the verses, and they've been included in Bibles ever since, but they've been included with an asterisk like in your Bible today. And for me, what this does, it just adds credibility and reliability to the Bible that committees of men and women who pour over Scripture are transparent in saying this is not original content. So there's nothing in these verses that are, is heretical. Nothing changes the story. In fact, what verses 9 to 20 seem to be are a compilation of resurrection stories from Matthew and Luke and a story from the book of Acts. And so since these are not original to the gospel of Mark and are not in the inspired word of God, I'm going to spend our time together talking about the original text to Mark verses 1 through 8 that Carol read for us. So beginning in chapter 16, verse 1, you can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. It says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? So let's just pause and put ourselves in this scene. On Friday, Jesus was crucified, and about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, Jesus took his last breath, gave up his spirit, cried out, it is finished, and died. Two men, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, went to Pilate, and they asked for Jesus' body so they could honor him with a proper burial, and chapter 15 finishes with these words. It says, so Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And then the sun went down on Friday afternoon. The Jewish Sabbath, the day of rest, was from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. So sometime after sundown on Saturday, these women went out and they bought spices to anoint Jesus' body, which was a very ordinary act performed after someone died. 
The Middle East is a hot, arid place, and to offset the smell of decomposition, these ladies are going to cover Jesus' body in spices. And so on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they make their way to the tomb. And this phrase, the first day of the week, is so important. And Mark is doing something here. It was on the first day of the week that God began his creation in Genesis 1. And now in the Gospels, we discover that it was the first day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. And what Mark is communicating, if you're following in your notes, is in the resurrection of Jesus, God was setting about the work of a new creation. God was setting about the work of new creation. Jesus is the beginning of a new creation. Let me share what I mean by saying that. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Through Adam, in Genesis, sin and death entered the world, and through Jesus, resurrection and newness of life are born. In 1 Corinthians verse 45, that same chapter, Paul calls Jesus the last Adam. The last Adam. Paul and Mark take us back to the beginning, the first pages of the Bible, and they show us that the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden introduced sin and death into the world, and we learned last week it affects us all. We're all guilty because we've all chosen to live our own way rather than live God's good ways. And in contrast to Adam's disobedience, Jesus obeys God and undoes the curse of sin and death, and he begins a new creation. The resurrection is ushering in a new creation. So it's the first day of the week, and the three women are headed to the tomb. And their main concern is how they're going to move the stone that's covering the tomb. Here's what I want us to consider. Let's, let's get this perspective these women are not going to the tomb in order to witness Jesus' resurrection, right? I mean, we, we all know this. I, I don't think it even crossed their mind that Jesus would rise from the dead and his body would not be there. They were taking spices to anoint his dead body. And continuing in verse 4, with that mindset, we read, but they, when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. They arrived at the tomb, and they got the shock of their lives. I mean, the stone was already rolled away, and their first thought, I'm just guessing, their first thought had to be if someone had stolen the body. We're told they were alarmed. Other translations say amazed, shocked, astonished. The word only appears here in the New Testament, and it means to express fear and agitation. I love one definition of the word. If you're following in your notes, it means the women were without a way. They were without a way, which conveys they were at a complete loss. I mean, they've just got to be thinking, what is going on here? I mean, imagine losing a family member. You have the funeral. You have the graveside service. You've buried them, and you decide to go place some flowers by the grave a couple days later. You arrive early in the morning when it's quiet. 
And you discover the dirt's been moved back from the grave, the coffin is lying open beside the hole, and the body is missing. Your first thought is, someone has taken the body. That's what's going on in the minds of these women. And they notice a a young man dressed in a white robe. In the Gospel of Luke, we're told he's a person gleaming like lightning. And this is an angel. And just so we don't think about babies in togas on clouds playing a harp, when we hear the word angel, the, the literal meaning for the word angel in the Bible is messenger. What the women encounter is a messenger from God. And I love what Mark's doing here again. Mark begins his gospel in chapter 1 with a messenger, John the Baptist, announcing what God is about to do. And now in chapter 16, he closes his book with a messenger announcing what God has done. And the angel uses language that we see angels and divine beings use throughout Scripture. Don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. It's okay. And verse 6 Tells us, would you read this with me in the first gray box on your notes? The angel said, don't be alarmed. He said, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Last week, we talked about three of the most important words ever written. Do you remember what they were? Extra credit if you do. Steve remembers? What was it? They crucified him. Thanks, Steve. You gave a great message last week, by the way. They crucified him. Now, three more words that are just as important. He has risen. Did you just say that together? He has risen. It's a one-word sentence in the original language. Risen. Risen. It's, it's a one-word announcement, and it means to rise from the dead or be restored. If you're following your notes, Jesus has risen, restored to life. Restored to life. And the angel concludes with these instructions for the women in, chat, in, verse, in verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. They say, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Luke talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I love the words and Peter Because it's a message of forgiveness and restoration. Peter may have turned his back on Jesus by denying him three times, but Jesus never turned his back on Peter. Jesus does not give up on people, no matter how great their failure. And the message given to the women was to go to Galilee. Tell the disciples to go to Galilee. I just want you to see where this is. In context, Jerusalem is where everything took place around the death and resurrection of Jesus, and they are to go north to Galilee to meet Jesus, where a majority of Jesus' ministry was spent. His hometown was in Galilee in a city named Nazareth. In Mark chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus told his disciples this, that after his death, he would meet them in Galilee, but with all the chaos of the last few days, I'm sure they're not thinking about this. 
This is like Jesus saying, I'm going home. Meet me, meet me there. And throughout the gospel of Mark, if you remember, Jesus is telling people, don't say anything yet. Don't tell anybody about this. He would perform a miracle and say, don't tell anybody yet. He would heal somebody and say, don't go tell them that I did this. It's a theme. Don't tell anybody yet. So if you're following in your notes, the crucifixion and resurrection mark a turning point in gospel proclamation. They mark a turning point. This is the first command that Jesus' followers are told to tell something about him. The women must go to the disciples who must in turn go to Galilee. The women are given these instructions and the book finishes in verse 8 with the words, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Trembling describes what is happening in their bodies. They're shaking. Bewildered indicates what's going on in their minds, perplexed, confused, puzzled. It's like they're looking at each other and they just don't know what to make of this. And that's it. The gospel ends. The other gospels end with Jesus appearing to people after he rose from the dead. So why does Mark end the gospel here? I think there's several reasons. First, it fits the title of Mark's gospel. If you look at chapter 1, verse 1, I think we have this on the screen. It says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus bring the narrative to a close. But the resurrection is not the end of the story. It's just the beginning. The resurrection sets in motion a new story that's not yet finished or resolved, and it won't be resolved until Jesus returns. The story ends with the first evangelist in the history of the church, the three women, and then there's a blank at the end of the story. And I think what Mark is doing here is he's inviting us to fill it ourselves. Mark leaves us standing beside an empty tomb, forced to decide how we will respond. The ending has Jesus waiting in Galilee for his followers to come, and it forces us to ask whether we'll go meet him in Galilee, and it prompts us to reflect on our own fear and silence. Mark leaves us with the unfinished business of sharing the news that Jesus has written. Mark passes the baton to us and asks us, to proclaim the good news, the gospel of Jesus. The women are silent, and if you're following in your notes, we're left with the question, who will tell the story? Who will tell the story? Now listen, we know the women did in fact go tell the disciples, and the disciples went to Galilee to meet Jesus because we have this story in the first place, and because other gospel writers tell us that this happened. So this is a temporary silence of not sharing the good news. But, but Mark asks us who will share the story. And this is why we talk so much around here about being a sent people. Jackson prayed for this this morning, that we would be a people compelled to share the good news of Jesus. People who go to Galilee and meet Jesus and spend time with Jesus. And we tell people that he has risen. He has risen. Three words that have changed the history of the world. 
And so I want to finish today and this series by providing four ways the resurrection has changed the world. Four ways the resurrection gives us hope. First, if you're following in your notes, the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of our faith. It's the foundation of our faith. I heard a teacher once say that our faith is not based on the teachings of Jesus. And I remember hearing that and almost saying out loud, wait a minute. You can't mess with Jesus like that. You you cannot say that. And he went on to say that our faith is not based on the teachings of Jesus. He said our faith is based on a singular event in history, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And as I've studied, I think he's right. Obviously, as followers of Jesus, his word, the Bible, instructs us on how to live the way of Jesus. We need his word. It is a lamp unto our feet. It is our guide for life. But without the resurrection, the teachings of Jesus would just be teachings of a man that died. I love what Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, said about the resurrection of Jesus. I think we have this quote on the screen. He said, if Jesus rose from the dead then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, as bluntly as you can put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the foundation of our faith. Number two, the resurrection of Jesus defeated death. The resurrection of Jesus defeated death. This gets at Tolstoy's question. If you remember his question, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Without the resurrection of Jesus, nothing has been conquered. Not sin, not death, not evil. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the answer to Tolstoy's question is no. There's no meaning. It's all meaningless. Sure, life can be good here and now, but in the end, death will destroy everything. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, thank you for being here. I really mean that. But if you are not a follower of Jesus, there is nothing death will not destroy. I read a quote this week that hit me in the chest. It said this, death is the great wrecking ball that destroys everything. Everything we've done, everything that we're doing now, and all our plans for the future are completely and irrevocably destroyed when we die. Only teenagers live in that state of temporary insanity when they believe themselves immune from death. Death is the great wrecking ball that destroys everything. But the good news The reason we've spent time with Jesus in the gospel of Mark is for those that follow Jesus, death doesn't destroy everything. 
Yes, it is painful for those who remain, but because Jesus rose from the dead, the powers of sin and death no longer have the last word. Jesus told us in John eleven twenty five. he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he asked them this, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Death can cause anxiety and fear, but it can be replaced with confidence and security because in the resurrection, Jesus is victorious over death. And there will one day come when there is death no more. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 26, and then 54 and 57, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. He continues, then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death and the law gives sin its power. But thank God. And then would you read this last part with me? He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14 says, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Scripture teaches us that because Jesus rose from the dead, his followers will too. Jesus' resurrection defeated death. Jesus' resurrection defeated death. Number three, the resurrection provides us with power for daily living. Power for daily living. This is a little bit of a review from last week, but you can't separate the crucifixion. They crucified him with the resurrection. He has risen. And when we follow Jesus, we're, we're completely transformed. We are given a new nature. Three verses that show us this, the first in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. Romans 6, 4 tells us that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As new creations, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives inside you. And the book of Romans chapter 8 tells us that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside every Christ follower. Did you know that? If you are a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. We are people of the resurrection. We've been buried and raised to new life in Christ. And the power of sin has been defeated in our lives. We're no longer guilty and condemned. And the resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead gives us the ability to overcome temptation and sin. We now have the power to say no to sin. We're still going to sin every day this side of heaven, but we have the power to say no to the habit that has us stuck in bondage and guilt and shame. 
We have the power to find hope and joy even in difficult circumstances. We have the power to love those who are difficult to love. We have the power to experience peace even when we're dealing with anxiety and depression. The resurrection provides us with power for daily living. And I I just want to ask you, how would your life look different if you lived with resurrection power? How would your life look different? Because church, I want to see us become a people who live in the power of Jesus. Every day, everywhere we go. The resurrection gives us power for daily living. And then fourth and finally, the resurrection makes everything new. It makes everything new. Friends, we know how the story ends. We know that when Jesus returns, he'll establish his kingdom right here on a renewed, recreated earth. And the last book of the Bible, Revelation, gives us a glimpse of what that will be like. Would you read the second gray box in your notes with me? Let's read this full voice. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. This is what we'll experience But I want to point something else out that is vitally important for us. Yes, this is a future hope, but the words I am making are present tense. God is working now to make everything new. And so maybe you've given up on yourself or others have given up on you. Or maybe you've given up on a situation in your life because you've lived with it for so long and nothing's changed. Maybe it's a medical condition. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's an addiction. What do you think is dead and beyond repair and renewal? What do you believe cannot be recreated and restored? Because the resurrection shows us that we have a God that knows how to bring dead things to life. This year... In our staff chapels, we have the monthly. It's a time for our staff to come together and pray and sing. And this year, Steve had to share our testimonies with each other. We just finished that last week. And one of our staff shared their story that had been filled with pain and brokenness. And at the end of her testimony, she said, I want everyone to know there is nothing beyond God's power to heal and restore. An author and theologian named Frederick Beekner said this. You can see it on the screen. The resurrection means the worst thing is never the last thing. The worst thing is never the last thing. There's always hope. If we follow Jesus, there's always hope. And so let me ask you this question as we close today. Where do I need the hope of resurrection? Where do you need the hope of resurrection? If you're a follower of Jesus already, is there something you've given up on? Is there something you've prayed years for or someone you've prayed years for and you're about ready to throw in the towel because there's no change? Where do you need the hope of the resurrection? And if you're not a follower of Jesus, 
I want to extend this invitation to you today. You can see these words on the screen. This is from the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 9. It tells us how to be made right with God, how to go from being dead to being alive. The Bible tells us if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Declaring Jesus as Lord and believing in the resurrection can be your next step today. But where do you find yourself? Where do you find yourself needing the hope of the resurrection in your life? We want to give you a moment of stillness and quiet to reflect on what God said to you through his word today. If anything stood out, that is frequently God trying to get our attention. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to us. Just take the next moment and just name, tell God where you need the hope of resurrection. Where do you need it? Thank you for listening to this week's teaching. If you'd like more info on our church, you can visit our website or find us on Facebook.